This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Twenty twenty three has been a record year for legislation aimed at trans youth. More than a dozen states have passed laws limiting gender affirming care for minors. That's according to the Human Rights Campaign. This month, Texas became the largest state by population to do so with the passage of Senate Bill 14. Parents there are making the difficult decision about whether to leave the state. Hi, this is Liz. I'm a parent of a trans youth, and after this legislative session, we are definitely thinking about getting out of the state. Unfortunately, my husband has kind of a dream job right now, and so it'll most likely be the children and myself moving out at least for the first year to see what happens next. It's just no place to continue to keep the kids and keep them safe and have them enjoy a childhood whenever they are constantly having to advocate for basic rights. Liz, thanks for that message. In November, we traveled to Texas to hear from parents of trans kids. We were there as part of our Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations across the country, including KUT in Austin. It's a two-year reporting project exploring how democracy is working for all of us and how it's not. Here's Sarah, whose name has been changed to protect her family's identity. Her nine-year-old daughter is trans. We are surrounded and uplifted by the most amazing community here in Austin. And so much so that my youngest daughter doesn't really know all the horrors that are happening in the world right now that await her, sadly. And yes, at some point I have to have that difficult conversation with her, but not yet. She is thriving. She is seen. She's valued. She's loved. Direct harm, I think, is going to more directly have to happen to us before I make the decision, okay, it's time. And if it was just me, I would stay here and fight this until I had nothing left. We spoke with Sarah back in November in Austin, along with other parents and members of the trans community. You can hear that event immediately following this episode. Now that the Texas legislature has followed through and passed a bill that prevents doctors from prescribing hormones or puberty blockers to trans youth, we want to follow up on that conversation. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome Sarah, who joins us now from Texas. Sarah, welcome back to the program. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Also joining us from Austin is Lauren McGaughy. She's an investigative reporter at the Dallas Morning News who covers the Texas legislature. Lauren, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And we'd also like to welcome Dr. Molly McLean. She founded DeSeo, the only all-ages gender care clinic in New Mexico. Dr. McLean, welcome to 1A. 
Thanks so much for having me. So, Sarah, I want to get into the details of the legislation, but first, I I want to hear from you. You said you were wanted to stay in Texas to fight the legislation, and that's something you would definitely do if it was just you. But how are you feeling now? Um, I'm riding a roller coaster of emotions today. I'm mostly in my anger, um, just feeling devastated and angry that it's come to this and also that we really didn't have a chance to tell our stories and lawmakers chose not to meet with us to hear our experiences. So um, it's been um, traumatic and I'm exhausted. Um, I think I can speak for everyone in our community that we're absolutely exhausted right now. What efforts did you make to talk to lawmakers about what this legislation would mean for your family and families like yours? Well, first off, they had a committee hearing, HB 1686, which they cut off at midnight. We had 458 people come to testify. Only about 50 people were allowed to speak, and they were handpicked. So they had someone come up and speak for the bill, someone come up and speak against, and vice versa. So it really skewed the testimony to appear to be um, 50-50, when in reality, something like 2,800 people or 2,900 people filed against the bill that day and only 97-4. So I waited all day along with hundreds of other Texans to share our stories, but they ended up prioritizing the stories of a handful of people who have detransitioned and honestly didn't receive good health care, in my opinion, um, who are not Texans and did not receive their health care in Texas. So they got to speak. Um, We did not get to speak. I also went to representatives' offices to ask to have meetings with Dr. Oliverson, Representative Click, who chairs that committee along with others and was shut out. Um, and in other ways, they, they could have had a second uh, opportunity for public hearing when the bill went into the other chamber, but they did a committee substitution instead, which allowed them to, again, suppress our voices and not have to hear from us. So just really at every step of the process, we weren't allowed to speak and share our stories. And I really think if we had been, and they would hear from us that things would have been different. Lauren, exactly what does SB 14 say? I, I want to just remind readers, is sitting on the governor's desk, it has not been signed into law yet. But the bill, uh, if he signs it, would uh, ban doctors from prescribing hormones or puberty blockers to minors, so anyone under the age of 18, but solely for the purposes of um treating gender dysphoria. So other minors who would want to receive those med- that medical care for other purposes like early pre- puberty could still get them. Um, and then the bill also would require doctors to wean patients off of uh, gender-affirming care um, in a way that they say is, is medically responsible, but that's not detailed in the bill. Um, and then something that uh, hasn't been explored a lot uh, yet, but is a, a definitely a very important part of the legislation, is it would ban any institutions um, that receive state funding uh, from supporting this kind of care. So that could be um, medical schools or, or um, clinics that are supported by state funding. I should note we did reach out to Texas State Senator Donna Campbell, a Republican who sponsored this legislation, but she didn't respond to our request 
for an interview. In March, one of Texas's neighbors went in the opposite direction, legislatively speaking. New Mexico's Democratic governor signed a law that prohibits local municipalities or any public body in the state from limiting a person's access to gender-affirming care or reproductive care. Dr. McLean, you are in New Mexico. What's the age range of patients you treat at your clinic? Uh, We um, treat patients of all ages. Um, As a family medicine trained doctor, uh, we're trained to address care across the age spectrum. But I also just want to point out that I think you were talking about HB7, which was very important. I got to be there when the governor signed it. It was amazing. Um, But New Mexico also passed three other bills, um, one of which will protect providers um, from out-of-state investigations and potential legal attacks for providing this care. And others, um, one made it easier for trans folks to legally change their names. Um, And then another um, adds gender identity to anti-discrimination and hate crime laws. So I think New Mexico is really um, trying to lead the the vanguard in terms of creating a refuge state for LGBTQ people. How many new patients are you seeing from out of state? That's a great question. Um, The Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico um, is a really important uh, partner. Um, a leader in the country and the state for that kind of information. And they're having a hard time um, quantifying it. Um, I've been getting a lot of calls for patients who want to come from Texas to get care here. Um, My colleague, um, a pediatric endocrinologist who actually kind of fled from Arkansas to come here. Um, I talked to her last night. She's gotten at least 30 calls. Um, So we're working with our institution to really try to figure out um, a systemic way of addressing this because um, Kids deserve it. Families deserve it. And we really want to be um, part of a solution that really protects um, people who have faced a lot of discrimination even before all of this legislation. Well, we're hearing from some of you about what you're experiencing in your state. My name is Patrick Chesbro. I am in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And this issue hits pretty close to home. I, I'm openly gay at work. I work for a Christian organization. There just hasn't been an issue with that until... Recently, I have a child that identifies as trans, and I will not call them a sinner. I won't revoke my support of gay rights, and I got terminated for it, for being gay and having a trans kid. Patrick, thanks for that message. Indiana's Republican Governor Eric Holcomb signed a bill into law in April that bans medical and surgical gender-affirming care for youth there. The ACLU in Indiana has filed a lawsuit. We also want to hear from you. What's happening in your state? Email us at 1A at WAMU.org or talk to us through our app, 1A Vox Pop, and you don't need to share your name. Sarah, what conversations are you and your family having today about whether to stay in the state? Well, as I I think I mentioned the previous time I talked to you, um, moving for us right now really is not an option. My older daughter is 15. I have a shared custody agreement with her dad. So if we we relocate to provide health care for my younger daughter, who's nine, who I wanted to mention isn't receiving any health care yet, she's just socially transitioned, then that means that my older daughter would stay here with her dad and I would go from seeing her all the time to seeing her just in the summer. And that's a deal breaker for me. So one of the things we've considered is uh, if it does get to the point where our younger daughter needs health care, that perhaps we will split up and my husband and her will go out of state and I will stay here with my older daughter while she finishes up high school, which is what she deserves. Sarah, I remember in our last conversation, you mentioning the community you've found 
in Austin and the support you provide to one another. What are you hearing from other trans kids and their their families in Texas right now? Most people I know if they're able are making plans to move. And that means, you know, school teachers who've been teaching for 20 years, people who own businesses selling their business. Um, it's and it's and it's not like we have, um, you know, not seen the writing on the wall that this is coming. But I think we really thought, given that in 2021, when this bill came up and we fought it back, that we might be able to again this year. And so it's feeling a bit more frantic now um, as as people make these plans and have to make these tough decisions. And as as you know, if you look at these national maps, there's not very many places we can move where we're guaranteed this right for our child. Lauren, as Sarah said, there was similar legislation proposed in Texas in 2021 to ban transition-related care for trans youth, but it didn't pass. Why do you think it passed this session? Uh, It it seems as though there's just kind of been a groundswell in red states and GOP-controlled legislatures for this kind of bill. Um, There just wasn't – when I've asked legislators about why this year – here in Texas, they said, well, we just didn't really know that much about the issue uh, two years ago. But also, if you speak with LGBTQ rights um, advocates, they note that, you know, in states like Texas, they there were other red meat issues that they wanted to get across the finish line, like abortion bans and further loosening gun laws. And that's what they were working on in previous sessions. And there maybe might have been one bill that you know, sought to restrict LGBT rights on the calendar. Um, Now that Texas has done all of those other issues, you know, the abortion issues, the gun issues, it seemed like all of the attention um, was on the LGBTQ community and particularly the trans community this session. The gender-affirming care ban was one of more than 100 anti-LGBT bills that were, were filed in Texas this year, and several of them are now sitting on Governor Greg Abbott's desk. So it, it just felt like all eyes were on the community, and, and it, was, it was definitely really hard for a lot of people here to deal with that. Lauren, can you give us a couple of examples of other legislation? Sure. So the uh, couple other bills that are on the governor's desk right now, which he hasn't signed yet but is expected to, um, there's a a bill restricting uh, participation by transgender athletes in intercollegiate sports. Um, And then there's some legislation regarding book content um, in libraries, which we've seen in other states as well. And then finally, um, in the 11th hour, really in the last couple of days of the session, Uh, legislators amended a bill um, that was previously targeting the the drag community, but it was softened in the House, and they they changed it yet again to put back in language that uh, the drag community says will will be able to be used to target them um, and specifically to, to bar children from being at performances or having those performances in public spaces, and it would place a criminal penalty on those performers. And and you talked about this upswell of legislation across the country. How similar is the legislation when you look from one state to another? It's pretty similar. Um, the the weaning provision in Texas is is less common. I think there's only about half dozen, five or six states that have the requirement that patients be weaned off of their gender-affirming care. Um, but in terms of the outright 
ban on uh, both puberty blockers and hormone therapy that that seems to be fairly consistent in the states that are tar- that that are targeting gender affirming care right now. Um, you know, Texas seems to go a little bit further in in making sure that it also targeted the state institutions um, that support this kind of care and in the weaning provision. There is a mechanism in the Texas bill to allow current patients uh, to remain on, but it's a fairly high bar uh, in terms of needing to have certain kinds of uh, visits with medical providers, and you wouldn't be able to switch between care. So someone on puberty blockers wouldn't be able to to move on to hormone therapy uh, under the legislation. And what do you know, Lauren, about the groups that are pushing for this legislation? That's also uh, seems to be consistent across the states that are banning gender affirming care for minors. Um, there's a small number of people, um, anti uh, transgender uh, care for youth uh, doctors and groups that have gone state to state to testify in favor of these bills. They're often invited by the legislators who've written them, and they come from cohorts that are. Uh, smaller um, groups that are that are specifically um, formed to target this kind of care. Um, they're not from, you know, the big medical institutions, the American Medical Association, um, Psychiatric Association. Those groups still support gender-affirming care for minors and oppose these bills, but the individuals that have shown up invited to speak for the legislation are not from, uh, generally not from those those supportive groups. Dr. McLean, if a parent comes to you and says that their child has expressed to them that they're experiencing gender dysphoria, where do you start? That's such a good question. I think that um, just like anything in medicine, there are a few different protocols that differ pretty uh, minimally, but we follow protocol. Um, One of the most important things in uh, the protocols and in my mind and my heart is that the family be involved. This is a family decision um, between you know, me as a medical advisor and the family knowing as much information as I can share with them. And then it's up to the family to decide what makes the most sense for them. Um, it's actually kind of a long process, um, you know, to diagnose diabetes, um, you just need a lab test. Um, this conversation lasts at least an hour. And oftentimes families take more than one visit to kind of work through questions that they have, um, concerns that they have about the medications and um, going back and speaking with family and and seeing that this is a good decision for them. But it's quite a long process. Um, I use the Endocrine Society guidelines uh, that were published most recently in 2017. I use uh, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health Protocol um, and kind of have created a consent form. So there's, it's a it's quite an involved process, and I feel very strongly that um, this is evidence based. Um, it's life saving care. Uh, there's really there is literally no major medical association that would say that that's not true, um, and. Part of what makes me so passionate about this work is just how um, impactful it is for families. Um, you see kids coming back um, feeling whole. You see kids coming back feeling less depressed, having less self-harm. Um, families feeling like they got their kid back. Um, and it's a lot of kind of ups and downs, but it's a beautiful thing to get to be a part of that journey with the families. Um, and it's, I think what I learned is that The difference between 2016, when a bill in North Carolina had to be repealed, um, a bathroom bill, um, the same groups and organizations that were fighting against abortion rights 
got together to find um, something that would galvanize the base. Um, and this is kind of what they landed on. They landed on language. They found out that sports was the thing that really resonated with with the voters. And then they did a very well-organized and well-funded effort to share basically a policy stance across the nation. And so just looking at the maps, it sounds like everyone else has looked at that. From 2016 to 2013, it's been a dramatic shift. And I think it's really hard for people who don't know any gender expansive people or don't know the medicine, the science. Um, I think it makes sense that, you know, there's this huge wave against transgender care. It must be not evidence-based. It must be unsafe. And there's really nothing further from the, from the truth. And I think I really appreciated um, the AMA and the American Academy of Pediatrics um, have called um, all of these legislative efforts governmental intrusion into the practice of medicine that is detrimental to the health of transgender and gender diverse children and adults. And I think that's exactly what's going on. Lauren, as we said, SB 14, that's the bill Republican Governor Greg Abbott is expected to sign in Texas. It also says, as you said, that minors currently taking puberty blockers would need to come off of them. What's the proposed timeline for that? Uh, There isn't a proposed timeline in the Texas bill. I know that in some other states that have proposed, uh, you know, weaning um, minors off of this medical care do have timelines, but there isn't one in Texas. I I spoke with the, the House sponsor of this legislation at length about about this provision that he added in. Um, And he said that he wanted doctors to have the flexibility to make those decisions. Um, But again, there's no definition of what weaning means, what it necessarily looks like. And, you know, clinicians that you talk to say that, that, you know, this isn't necessarily um, how you approach uh, providing best, you know, uh, medical care to someone according to best standards. With puberty blockers, for example, um, you know, you you take puberty blockers until you don't take them. It's not an, it's not a tapering off process necessarily. Uh, and then with hormone therapy. Um, you know, when someone is taking hormones for a reason other than treating gender dysphoria, you would want to taper. But if you taper someone off of hormones, it's not necessarily that they're then no longer going to have gender dysphoria. It, that, that underlying diagnosis is still going to be there. They're just not going to have access to, to the care that they were prescribed by their physician. So the, the legislation really only has one firm date in it, which is if you weren't receiving this care prior to June 1st of this year, um, which is uh, coming up, um, then, uh, you know, you can't then shift into it. There's kind of grandfathered in certain people who are already receiving this care with the weaning off provision, but future patients um, won't have access to, to that care if the governor signs it into law. Dr. McLean, what concerns do you have around young people having to taper off these medications? That's such an excellent question. Um, When you look at the data, kind of even before all these laws were being passed, um, in New Mexico since 2017, we've been collecting data for youth. Um, Instead of just asking, uh, giving the option of male or female on our youth um, risk and resiliency survey, we have had transgender as an option. Um, In 2021, 5% of our youth um, reported being gender expansive. And then when you look at the data that compares their health to their cisgender peers, it's terrifying. 
So 35.1 had unstable housing compared to 2.7. I think the worst statistic is that 32.5% of gender expansive kids in New Mexico had attempted suicide in the past 12 months compared to 8.3 of their cisgender counterparts. That's not even factoring in this legislation. That's also not factoring in getting take it, having your medications that actually have been shown in multiple studies not to have just uh, right now suicide prevention, but lifetime suicide prevention. Um, I think this is going to be a public health emergency and other public health officials think so too. Let's go to our inbox. We got this message from Stuart in Virginia who says, I have a family member who recently transitioned. She did so with a supportive family while living in a very progressive city. It was still extremely difficult for her. I can only imagine how daunting the process would be for someone who didn't have the support she had. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation. Lauren, what is the range of medical care SB14 covers. Does it also include therapy, for instance? SB 14 would not bar any kind of talk therapy um, for minors uh, who have gender dysphoria. In fact, during the debate, the supporters of the bill said that they thought that that was the only appropriate care that uh, minors with gender dysphoria should receive. So it it does not bar that. Dr. McLean, the bill in Texas does ban, quote, certain surgeries uh, that would sterilize a child and also bans mastectomies. How common are those procedures on young people under 18? Uh, Almost never. Um, Very, very uncommon. And that's that's a common misgiving, common confusion point. Um, the guidelines really suggest, um, and I, insurance companies won't pay for, and I don't think most clinicians would advise anybody get a surgery earlier than the age of 18. Um, our bodies continue to change, uh, and people have a lot of dysphoria, a lot of agony around their chest particularly. Um, that's the the biggest point. Um, I think the biggest thing that younger kids would like to get taken care of earlier. Um, But I consistently advise that if your body changes, let's give your body some time and let's give the medication some time. Let's see what happens because it would be horrible to get a surgery and then maybe have to get another one. So insurance companies also won't pay for anything after the age of 18, or sorry, earlier than the age of 18. Um, And then additional restrictions exist. Um, Everybody needs a, a letter from a behavioral health provider just to get top surgery. So if they want breast augmentation or chest reduction, and then if they want anything, that is related to genitals or reproductive organs. They have to have two different letters from behavioral health providers. Um, 
So it's again, there's there are a lot a lot of barriers to making sure that people are um, safe and not getting surgeries before they um, would be helped by them, um, and definitely not under the age of 18. Dr. McLean, I'm hoping you can help us with this question from Clem, who asks, are there medical tests and scientifically based tests that can be used to determine whether gender-affirming care is appropriate, or is the question whether to prescribe gender-affirming care is based solely on emotions? Well, that's a great question. So the the a lot of um, diagnoses, diagnoses that we work with um, a lot of them don't have labs or definitive objective findings. Um, and this uh, gender dysphoria or being uncomfortable um, with the discrepancy between the gender you were assigned at birth and the true gender that you know you are. Um, so there's there can be pain around that. Another term um, that other countries use is gender incongruence. Um, and so similarly to other um, non-objective data based diagnoses. We use what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, which is the psychiatric kind of diagnostic Bible. And so there are um, different um, diagnostic criteria that uh, children have that you have to meet at least four of six. And then for adults and adolescents, you have to meet at least two of six in order to be considered um, to to meet the criteria for that diagnosis, which is similar to depression, anxiety, um, any of the other um, DSM criteria. So it's there are no objective findings, but it's also not just based on emotions. In addition to the diagnostic criteria that we use, there are also consent criteria. Um, those were laid out by the Endocrine Society guideline and the WPATH, um, and so we have to actually use both of them in order to um, move forward if someone even wants medications at all. And, and what is the and WPATH? The WPATH is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, and they recently released their standards of care eight um, back in November of 2022. Um, so we use quite a lot of information and quite a lot of guidelines, and I can attest to the efficiency of those um, protections. And I've probably had about 1,500 patients in my time. Um, I've had three patients who've decided they don't want to be on the medications anymore, two of them because their families wouldn't let them be a part of their family and live their actual their true gender. And one person was a young person who decided testosterone just didn't feel good to them. Mm. So three of about 1,500. And that matches up quite well with data. Um, a study came out um, with 28, almost 28,000 people. And of those 28,000 gender expansive people, about 13.1% of those folks decided they didn't want to be on the medications anymore. And almost 85% of those people who opted out um, did it because of external pressure. And so I think that attests to the fact that the diagnostic and consent criteria are doing a very good job of capturing the folks who um, really need the treatment. And briefly, Dr. McLean, I think you were about to explain uh, how you decide what is age appropriate in terms of treatment as well. Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, Sarah is describing that her daughter is age nine and is doing nothing at all medically, and that's completely appropriate. People who are not puberly developed, um, there is a Tanner state, it's called Tanner staging, and that's a pubertal development um, staging criteria. Um, If someone is in Tanner stage one, um, kind of the earliest stage of puberty, we do nothing. We just affirm, we support, we do primary care, we do all the things that nine-year-olds need. Um, And it's not until someone reaches pubertal um, or Tanner stage two um, that a pubertal blockade would even be indicated. And that's, again, only if they want it. And so those are, again, lots of conversations about that. And then... um, 
the, deci- the time when we decide to start hormone therapy after being on pubertal blockade um, is kind of up in the air. Uh, the Endocrine Society guidelines holds fast to 16 as the recommended age. Um, but some people, including myself, um, I do more patient family centered care. So when kids are on pubertal blockade, um, we meet every six months. And every time I ask them, are your friends going through puberty? Are you interested in puberty yet? Um, is that causing you anxiety to not be going through puberty? Um, and so we kind of do it based on when the family and the patient, um, is ready to go through puberty. And then you start hormone therapy, um, and then off they go and live in their lives. So it's all very, um, age specific. I got this, we got this message from one of you. I'm a gay man who lives in Illinois, which is a very welcoming state. I would like to know how your guests feel about their fellow human beings in the state of which they reside when they're willing to elect officials who put these draconian measures in place. Sarah, has this changed your relationship to other Texans? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. Yes, absolutely. Um, One of the things I'm so angry about is that people have just kind of watched this happen. And they're for the families, those of us who feel comfortable and resourced enough to speak out against this, you know, we're really screaming about this very loudly and have been for a long time. And it really feels like we've been abandoned by our peers who don't have trans kids. Um, And I think... You know, I think some people believe like, oh, that could never happen or others believe, well, I don't know anything about this. So like, how can I speak out against it? But the reality is, is that you don't have to be an expert in trans health care to go say, I believe my friend, my friend is a great parent. I believe my friend knows what's best for her child. And that's really what I needed people to do. And I did have some friends show up for me, but not like we really needed. The reality is we're a very small population of people, and um, this is not going to be pushed back upon until um, more people speak out and recognize that this is really right, you know, extreme Christian nationalists that have politicized this. It's not about saving kids. It's not about keeping kids safe. It's solely about maintaining power and using our kids to do that because they've realized that um, it it really gets um, their base going to hear the misinformation about things like genital mutilation and genital surgeries, which are not happening, as Dr. McLean said. Um, whereas on, on our side, people just don't know enough, or maybe they don't know a family with a trans kid, and so they don't feel compelled to speak out. So they've really found this place of um, attacking this small group of of people who are already marginalized or already afraid to share their stories. Um, And, you know, sadly, it's working. So yes, I have a lot of anger towards um, people who continue to vote these people into power and, and don't care to listen to the truth, which is our stories, which is that we're just average everyday people that go to church and work and pay taxes and are just trying to have the Um, best possible outcomes for our kids. We got this message from David in North Carolina who wants to know how these gender-affirming care ban laws are even constitutional. How can the state step between a doctor, parent, and child relationship? And Patrick in Pittsburgh says, are there groups filing lawsuits against the restrictions based on the 14th Amendment? And the 14th Amendment addresses the rights of citizens. Lauren, what is the current state of possible lawsuits once this goes into effect? 
Uh, well, those are great questions um, from your listeners. There absolutely are efforts to challenge these laws in multiple states all across the country. Uh, the Texas bill hasn't been signed into law yet, so there's no lawsuit here. But a group of um, of organizations that have challenged these laws in other states, including the ACLU and Lambda Legal, have already said they're going to challenge uh, the Texas bill when it becomes law. Um, a lot of the challenges center on uh, equal protection arguments. You know, uh, for example, in Texas, uh, um, minors who are not uh, don't have gender dysphoria can have will be able to continue accessing these same. Uh, the same course of treatment. And so uh, during the de- the final debate on the bill, Democrats kind of laid the groundwork for a legal challenge by asking questions about why uh, one set of patients would have access to care that another set of patients would not. Um, the, the Republican sponsor in the House tried to kind of get in front of this a little bit by including language in the bill called a severability clause. This is also been written into other legislation where if any one part of the bill is found to be unconstitutional, that you can kind of strip away that one part and leave the rest of the bill standing. So both the supporters and, uh, you know, the opponents of this bill know that, you know, while it may go into effect, um, you know, when it does, when it gets signed, that there there is going to be a legal challenge and it could possibly be put on hold. Um, that's happened in other states where, these same groups have challenged laws that some states have put the, the laws on hold while litigation is ongoing. But, you know, for, for parents like Sarah and these families, just the just the discussion of these laws um, has been, you know, hurtful and damaging. And so even if the, the legal uh, challenges uh, are successful, you know, we're in a we're in a point where we're seeing the striation of the country between supportive states, states that support LGBTQ rights and states that don't. And, you know, we're we're seeing more and more of the split with people leaving and it's kind of creating this these parallel Americas in a way. Um, and I think we won't really fully understand it for a long time. Well, this month, the entire staff of doctors at the Adolescent Clinic at Dale Children's Hospital in Austin departed. Here are parents Tom and Joanne Crawford speaking with KXAN in Austin. It wasn't just that one doctor was leaving the clinic. It was that all of the doctors affiliated with the Adolescent Medicine Clinic were leaving. The trouble comes as Attorney General Ken Paxton launched an investigation into Dell Children's Medical Center into what his office called potentially illegal gender transitioning procedures on minors. The Crawford's daughter is undergoing hormone replacement related to long-term care after cancer treatment, not her gender identity. And she was the one that made the connection and said, well, technically I'm on gender-affirming care, right? Thanks to KXAN in Austin for that audio. And we should mention the doctors at Dell's Children, Children's who left, also provided care for adolescents experiencing eating disorders. They also treated menstrual complications in cisgender adolescent girls. Lauren, what are the broader implications of this bill once it's signed? What are you hearing from the medical community? Uh, a lot of physicians in this realm feel targeted right now. Um, there's a doctor in Dallas uh, who practices at UT Southwestern. It's a, a dual hospital, UT Southwestern and, and Children's Medical Center of Dallas, who's actually suing the state. Um, our attorney general and our governor um, 
had families uh, investigated who were providing their children with gender-affirming care, and that's what the lawsuit centers on is, is actually that effort. Um, but uh, she, this doctor actually told us recently that she plans to leave the state uh, and move to California because of uh, Senate Bill 14. So there, again, you know, families are, are um, trying to decide whether they are going to pick up and leave, whether they can. Physicians are leaving. Um, we're seeing doctors in other states, uh, you know, like we were speaking about before, Colorado, New Mexico, receiving an influx of patients. And I, I do also just want to underline that, um, you know, like Sarah said, this is a small community. So in the past, when we were discussing things like gay marriage, uh, a lot of people's minds were changed because they had a gay family member. Um, but in this case, you know, the transgender community is is even smaller. And so many people may not have met a trans person or not known that they have met a trans person who's not out. And so that personal connection sometimes is lacking and and people feel like it it's not something that they've experienced and therefore don't understand. Sarah, we've only got a couple of seconds here, but I, I want to give you the last word. As a parent of a trans child, what do you what do you want us to know? Um, that these are just kids, and ultimately they deserve health care. And um, we shouldn't have to move out of state to get that. So and we're just average families. And um, this has really been an attack against us that isn't warranted and is based on a lot of misinformation. Sarah is the mother of a nine-year-old trans daughter in Austin, Texas. Her name has been changed to protect her family's privacy. We've also been joined by Dr. Molly McLean. She founded DeSeo, the only all-ages gender care clinic in New Mexico, and Lauren McGaughy, an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News. Sarah, Dr. McLean, Lauren, thanks for joining us. Coming up, we revisit our Remaking America conversation from November 2022 in Austin, Texas. During this discussion, we spoke with trans kids and their families, and it's also where we met Sarah from today's conversation. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
We're revisiting the conversation we had in 2022 in Austin, Texas in November. Back during this recording, more than 155 bills had been filed in state legislatures across the country. A majority of the legislation that had been filed in the last two years had targeted trans kids. We sat down with families of trans children as well as members of the transgender community. Mia lives in Austin with her 12-year-old trans son. She joined us along with Sarah, who has an 8-year-old trans daughter. Sarah's older child, Emma, also joined the conversation. And a quick note, we changed their names for this discussion out of concern for their safety. And lastly, we were joined by Morgan Davis. Morgan was born and raised in Austin. Last spring, he left his job at the Texas Department of Family Services over that directive to investigate families of trans young people. As Emma reminded us during this conversation, trans kids are just kids. So we started by asking Mia and Sarah to just tell us more about their children. Here's Mia. It's crazy how much we've been talking about him being trans the past few months because it's been more than we have the past since he came out. It just hasn't been a thing. It's probably like the thing that I think about the least about. Like, you know what I mean? When I consider him, it's like the thing that's on my mind the least. But he's a rock star. What's your favorite thing? I know it's hard to talk about the favorite thing. Oh, oh, I can tell you right now. He's the kindest person I've ever met my entire life. Just, just kind and genuine, just like a, just a good person and like empathetic and compassionate. And just, he's a, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Sarah, what about your daughter? My daughter is, um, truly a gift to me, to my family. I think I've learned more about raising her about myself really is really what this journey has been my daughter has is you know who she is and always has been and really it's been um, me learning and growing and I've been given that opportunity because I was blessed to have her really I want to ask you your favorite thing about her too um she is like hilarious so for instance (laughs) yes she is for instance we were watching the election results come in and um she was reading the screen she said democrat and republican what does that mean i said oh those are the two major parties in our political system in the united states and she goes a party can anybody go to this party (laughs) and i was like i kind of love the way you framed that yes anyone can join that party so. Emma, you jumped in right away and said, yes, my sister is is hilarious. Yeah, especially with like the dad jokes, like <laughs> every, every single time we go camping, like everyone gathers around and they're like, hey, what's your newest joke? And I think her favorite one is probably the one where it's like a man walks into his backyard and sees three holes. What does he say? Well, well, well. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... <laughs> Morgan, you were an investigator for Texas's Child Welfare Agency when this directive was issued earlier this year. I think it would be helpful to first walk us through what a typical investigation would look like. Typically, um, we're assigned the investigations on a rotation. And so my supervisor will call me and say, you've got a, you've got one. And then typically what we do is then I'll call the reporter and ask questions about the case. And then I will, on a normal investigation, if the child is in school, I will go to the school, bring them out of class, meet with them privately. Um, At that point, you interview and photograph and ask a series of questions. Um, At that point, I will then go to the parents' home. And then we do a home visit, interview the parents, 
look around the home, assess safety. I would call my supervisor and ask next steps for the case. What instructions did you receive regarding this directive when it came to investigating families who were providing gender-affirming care for their children? On the 22nd, we received a letter, and in two days we had a case. Um, the only, and I, I asked at the time if they had anything in writing, can you give me anything? And the answer was no. We had a half-page letter. And, and I just want to pause. When you said, do you have anything in writing, what did you want to see on paper? I guess the why. Why are these children being investigated? Ten months prior, I had started transitioning. I was 53. And so from my knowledge and my process, I knew that these children were safe and actually well cared for. And so what are you looking for? What do you need me to find? Um, Went to everyone. Every major medical organization was kind enough to talk to me and said the complete opposite, that if a family had this opportunity and didn't do it, there the abuse would lie. And I was told to go into the home. Um, I was told I could recuse myself if I wanted to, and I chose not to. Um, My supervisor was aware that I'd been transitioning, and I was told to go into that home and to treat them with love and respect and walk out. And at that point, we would close the case because genuinely there was not a single person who did not think that this was a political... uh, Golly, I don't know if you call it a stunt ma'am or a a political... um, a political move. As someone who'd been doing this work, I'm, I'm trying to understand how, from an ethical perspective, you try to, I can't say make peace, but try to reconcile what you are being asked to do with the way you approach this work and try to approach it through an ethical lens. It broke my heart. I did not have, I kind of got into this man because I wanted to be the advocate that I didn't have. That's why when I look around this room, I see these, these families, excuse me, that love their children and want to protect them. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be the advocate that I didn't have. And so I genuinely thought going to that home, I could, I could do that. I thought if there was abuse or neglect, I'll be able to find it. And it was the complete opposite. This was a loving family, and their beautiful trans daughter was exceptional. And ironically, it was completely different from any home I'd ever been in, and mine included. I knew that that night, when they wouldn't close the case, that we were in trouble. Sarah, can you you take me to the day the directive passed and as a mom, what you were thinking and and what you were feeling about what this meant for your daughter? I was terrified, panic-stricken. A sponsored bill came up to make us, declare us child abusers if we gave, you know, the proper health care to our kids. And that bill didn't even get through committee. And we had fought that and we had seen it die and that it had no teeth and um, for me, I left those four legislative sessions that year, like um, feeling cynical, but but also still hopeful that like, hey, look at what came our way and look at what we fought back. 
and and still having trust in the democratic process that um, that the way it played out. And then this really was so clear that it was just a maneuver that completely circumvented that democratic process that we have here in the U.S. and in Texas of of how do we form a law and make a decision that's going to impact a community like this. Um, and that was so frustrating to know that it they didn't play by the rules, that they didn't win, and so they went and made up their own rules. And the people that were being impacted would be my child, who I had to get an attorney for um, to keep her safe because I had been vocal. I had gone to the ledge. I had talked to media. Um, and we sat... We sat her down uh, along with Emma and told them, okay, you're going to have this letter in your backpack. You have representation if anyone comes to school, even if they are super official and they have a badge and everything. Like, you don't have to talk about your family. You just tell them, here's this letter. I have an attorney. I'm sorry. I just want to pause here. Remind us how old your daughter is. She had just turned eight. So you're, you're having this conversation. With her and Emma sitting on the couch with my husband, and she says to me, what's an attorney? And that is like, that's kind of when it all really hit me, like how ridiculous this is and how, just like Morgan said, like, we, we, I think, are exceptional parents because we work so hard and we we seek out guidance and we want the best for our kids and we know the danger that exists out there and we fight really hard for them. And the reality is that I've become friends with kids that have aged out of the foster system here in Texas who were physically abused and kicked out of their homes for being transgender. And I know social workers that have fought makeup and clothing for those kids so that they can feel affirmed. And that's the reality is we have a system that was already so underfunded and understaffed that now additional resources are going to be taken away to try to split up families like mine. Emma, I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching your response. I have a younger sister who, and when I tell you... <laughs> <laughs> the number of battles I have gone, gotten into about my sister. As an older sibling, what is what has this experience been like for you? I guess I've kind of been shielded from it because yeah. up until recently, I wasn't like directly involved with like all this work that my mom's been doing. So I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was younger, but you kind of hid it from me I guess but like now that I'm exposed to it I'm kind of like ooh these are like politicians who call themselves fair and honest and then they're just like cheating the system to get their way and to get the votes and to stay in power I mean I haven't had anyone like say anything directly about her to me at least but if someone did I don't think it would be very pretty so (laughs) I understand Mia, you said this experience for you around this directive, this is this is new territory because you're not from here. 
So walk me through what happened for your family when this directive dropped. I physically felt it. Um, my, the initial reaction, just disbelief. Let me like, this is not happening right now. And then panicking and scrambling and trying to figure out what to do next and having no idea what to do. Not really having friends here, especially friends in the queer community, or just not having a lot of support and feeling like your back is up against the wall. All you want to do is just make sure that you keep your child safe, but knowing that like, how do you do that without making yourselves targets and asking my child to live in a closet that he never lived in before and being afraid to reach out for help and not knowing who's safe and who's not safe and all the things like that are the hot topics, the hot button topics that are going on right now. Like my family is directly affected by a lot of them. Just a lot of, just a lot of wondering what, what to do next. What do I do next? That, that does, you brought up something I was wondering about, which is how you as parents find support for, for yourselves. When, as you said, Mia, you're not certain whether everyone is safe. Where, where are you finding support right now? I was telling my son on the way over here, like, why we're doing this. And it was just because I know that, like, odds are, even, this, even here in the city, that there's, there are other moms that are feeling the exact way. That, that They're in my situation, that are in my shoes, and they're feeling just so lonely and isolated and just need in ear. Sarah, what about what about you? Where are you finding support? I mean, the silver lining that came out of the legislative session for me last year is that I left those rooms with community like I had never had community before in my life. And those are some of my dearest and closest friends now. And I was just talking to Mia about this, about how like it's really hard to navigate the world living in this space with just with moms who don't have trans kids because you're always having to explain why you are not functioning well, why your anxiety so why are you so hyper vigilant? Why are you not sleeping? But having like this texting group that I can write to, they get it. I don't have to give any background. Like I can just talk about what happened today or how I'm feeling, and there's no judgment because we're all doing exactly the same right now, which is surviving and, and trying to fight too. But for me, same thing coming here. Like I think the antidote to fear and anxiety is action. And so I feel better, even if I don't win, like knowing that I came and I shared stories and I've seen the impact sharing your story can have. I grew up in Alabama in a conservative evangelical family and have so many people who, you know, my my daughter is the first out trans person I've ever known in my life. Being able to share the story of my background and my journey and what I've learned, it has helped. It's opened their hearts. They get it now, you know. Some of them have like, they speak up for me now. We're listening to a conversation we recently recorded at KUT, Austin's NPR station. Reverend Remington Olivia Johnson joined us for this part of the conversation. She's a trans woman, a Presbyterian minister, and a registered nurse serving in the ICU. Remington has advocated against anti-trans legislation in Texas for years. I asked whether she was surprised by the new directive. No. 
what what folks need to understand is this stuff doesn't just come out of the ether. A lot of folks don't know transgender children. It's a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit ambiguous um, in terms of how the arguments are. You know, we, we want to protect the girls. Who doesn't want to protect the girls? Everybody wants to protect the girls. So it's a message on first pass where everyone goes, sure. Um, and so we see the folk on, folks on the right turn out. We see it, it generates incredible aggression and, and, and sort of fomenting of, of panic on the right. And on the left, it's mostly apathy. And so you have this just nasty mixture where it is this lonely fight of a bunch of moms of kids showing up and going against, you know, $45 million money machines. When you first heard about the directive that it was that it was going through, what sort of harm were you most concerned about? When I first heard that bill was happening, it felt just crushing because it felt like a personal failure of mine, that I didn't work hard enough, I didn't show up enough, I didn't sacrifice enough to protect these families. So we have, we have an election two days ago. I turned my phone on... Um, have a break at work. I've been working three straight. So I turn my phone on, see how my moms are doing. And what do I see? I see, oh, okay, we're making decisions to move. Which in some way is a relief for every family that gets out of Texas because then I know that they're safe. And at the same time, I know these children. My child plays with their children. I just want to note here that in response to the Texas Directive, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Texas Pediatric Society said in a statement, quote, for young people who identify as transgender, studies show that gender-affirming care can reduce emotional distress, improve their sense of well-being, and reduce the risk of suicide. I think it's important to provide that context. We heard from Remington there that she's hearing from families she knows they're considering leaving the state. Mia, is that a conversation you're having with your family? For the first time ever, yeah. I think it was this past weekend. I don't I don't want to leave Texas. It's like this is the first place I've ever lived where I feel like I've home, I made a home and I like it here, I love it here. I don't want to have to leave. I don't want to start over again. I can't afford to start over again. This is my home. Sarah, what about you? Is that a conversation you're having with your family? Yeah, I think there's not a family that's not having that conversation right now that has a trans child in Texas. So I share custody with Emma's dad from uh, my ex-husband, my first marriage. And uh, we have 50-50 custody, and he lives here in town, and um, we have a pretty good relationship. And um, if I need to move to protect my younger daughter, um, Emma will stay here with him and Right now, that's um, that's a deal breaker for me. Um, it's important to me for my family to stay together. It's also important for me to teach my kids that you fight for what's important for you, important to you. We are surrounded and uplifted by the most amazing community here in Austin, and so much so that um, my youngest daughter doesn't really know all the horrors that are happening in the world right now um, that await her, sadly. And yes, at some point I have to have that difficult conversation with her. 
but not yet. Life is beautiful. She enjoys Minecraft. She has tons of friends. <laughs> yeah, a little too much, little maybe. Too much. <laughs> She'll be mad that I said that. Um, she's so creative. Uh, she is thriving. Um, she is seen. Um, she's valued. Um, she's loved. Direct harm, I think, is going to more directly have to happen to us before I make the decision, okay, it's time. And if it was just me, I would stay here and fight this until I had nothing left. Morgan, we talked about the investigation um, you were directed to to do with one family. How does that impact the child involved, the parents, the, the family structure as a whole? Traumatizes them. The reporter, my reporter from, was a mandated reporter, and she wept on the phone. Literally in my notes in the report said, reporter wept. She had to do this, and she wanted that known that she had to do this. Her colleague was considered a star and had, had served the state of Texas for 25 years, down to the mother who I had to call, who also did, wept. And she said because she knew it was coming. And it didn't help that I was trans. It didn't help that I was friendly. In the end, I was an investigator walking into their home. And thank God they had attorneys. But as I was walking out, the attorney made the comment, you shouldn't be here. That's how many of the caseworkers felt. They have crushing caseloads and cases that, that truly need their help and care. And this is what they're asked to do, is to go into a loving, kind home. And... At the very end, I was the last person left in my unit because they could, morally, could not continue. And these are people that dedicated their life to service. Now, Remington, some families in Texas are protected under a PFLAG lawsuit. Uh, The organization has about 600 members in Texas. What would you say to people who say, okay, yes, there's this directive, but it has no teeth? So when we think about the courts, does it have teeth? Does it not have teeth? The courts will not save us. We will save ourselves. Here's what happens with the courts. Here's what happens with the way the Republican playbook is written. Is you're a person of power. You're Abbott. You're Paxton. You have a big microphone. You get out and you say something. And then what happens, whether it is true or not true, or found um, the judges side with you, or they don't side with you, or a bunch of lawyers help out the families of trans kids, what happens every single time, whether you're uh, the mother of a trans kid, or an undocumented person in Texas, um, or somebody else who they just happen to decide to target that day, is you will suffer. That is their power, and democracy does not protect us from that. That is the big microphone. We got small microphones. Um, And so what happens is you get this sort of, you know, you get what is happening where Nazis show up at drag time story hour. I'd love to hear from each of you what you want people around the country to remember or to understand that you think maybe it doesn't get discussed enough, doesn't get talked about, gets overlooked. 
But as we see these laws continue to pop up across the country targeting trans youth, what do you, what do you want people to understand or what questions do you want people to ask themselves? Sarah, I'll come to you first. I would ask people to not look away, to have a little bit of faith in some moms who are just trying to do the best job we can raising our kids. And our goal is for them to get to adulthood and thrive and be happy. And, you know, that medicine is not perfect. There's always going to be, you know, case-by-case basis with these kids, and it's a journey for each of them, and sometimes people change the way they feel at different points, and all of that is okay. The goal is to get them to adulthood so that they're happy and thriving, so that because there's nothing more um, irreversible than death. We heard from Sarah, but Mia, what about you? Just at the end of the day, they're kids, and all we want is for our kids to be okay. And anybody can empathize with that. Anybody can. Morgan, what about for you? We need to let the kids be kids. They're... But I do want them to see these amazing families. I just want them to have that mirror just a little bit. Because one thing through this experience has been getting to meet people and shake our hands and say, now you know someone who's trans. Emma, what about you? Trans kids are kids, and you gotta showcase the suffering so that people understand, but you gotta showcase the joy and the happiness that people are also experiencing in like wearing a dress for the first time or putting on makeup or wearing a suit. I love suits. <laughs> and Remington, because you you have been spending so much time at the Capitol and and I heard you when when you said people think this doesn't affect them or because it's uncomfortable, they might lean out. I think it's really a useful exercise to leave people with questions they should ask themselves. Let's, let's sort of wrap all this up, right? Which is, we have the stories of these families trying to do the very best they can to know their children as every parent seeks to know their child that their children aren't hiding from them, that your children are coming to them and saying, hey, here I am, I want to be with you, I want to be family, and I want to shine. And you have these families seeing their children shine and supporting them and resonating with that, and it is generative and beautiful. And so the question we ask is, why is this so threatening? Why this? Why now? And what does this mean for a society that allows one particular group of people, children, and one particular type of child to be singled out, fundraised against, vilified in the public square, legislated against, um, terrorized? Why would we allow that to happen? And so you have to pull farther back. And you have to start asking yourself more uncomfortable questions, which is, what does it mean when a legislator gets all the information, 
gets talked to by all the experts? Has the children come before them and testify? Has the parents, has the activists, has everybody? And looks at you and says, I see you and I believe that you should suffer. And I will take no steps to protect you or insulate against the harm that the bill that I'm voting for is going to do. What does it mean for us to live in a society where these are the people that govern us? It's uncomfortable. You want to believe that these folks have a heart, that these folks would see the suffering, that you'd see somebody and you'd be moved. And yet time and time again, they haven't. So the uncomfortable question is, what is it like to live in this place? And many folks are very familiar what it's like to be a minority and, and, and to, to not see the majority take action to protect you. But you expand even further, and now you throw gender into the mix. And a lot of times, the, 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 the trans person that people are aware of is the one that is most visible, I'm just shy of six foot three, and I am radiant. Um, And so folks are familiar with seeing me, and they know what that looks like, and they know that sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. Why does it make them uncomfortable? Because sometimes gender makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And so the question for everybody to think about is, why? And to just ver- have a little bit of curiosity. No one's going to solve this, right? But you're just going to say, huh, I'm going to look at that. Why does that make me a little uncomfortable? Was I a tomboy? Was I, was I allowed to show my shoulders? You know? Um, was I sexually harassed? Um, was I told to man up? We've all had gender forced upon us. We've all been put into gender categories. We have all suffered the binary, every one of us. And so the question for everyone listening is, what has it been like to suffer under this system? Because our suffering has been their suffering and our triumph is their triumph. Um, Pantsuits are for everybody. And that's because of us. I want to thank our panel in Austin for joining us. Reverend Remington Olivia Johnson is a Presbyterian minister, ICU nurse, and trans rights activist. Also, Morgan Davis. He left his job at the Texas Department of Family Services over the directive to investigate families of trans young people in Texas. Mia lives in Austin with her 12-year-old trans son and Sarah. She has an 8-year-old trans daughter. Sarah's older child, Emma, also joined us. Both of these conversations are part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations around the country, including KUT in Austin. It's a two-year reporting project asking how democracy works for all of us and how it doesn't. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Anna Casey. Amanda Williams edits the Remaking America project. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking. 
committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.